Merciful and gracious God, open our eyes that we may behold glorious and wonderful things in your word and teach us and unfold to us today the wondrous things that you are doing by your spirit across all the world and also among us that we may learn to keep in step with the spirit and show the fruit of the spirit and be filled once again with the spirit we pray in jesus name amen, amen. please take a seat Let me add my welcome to that given earlier to those of you who may be with us today, uh, not normally among us at All Saints. It's just a, such a privilege and a pleasure for us to have visitors here, and we hope that you feel welcome and are able to stick around to celebrate the two things that we're celebrating today, because today is a double celebration with the church across the road, across the road, across the world, pardon me, with the church across the world and the church across the road, actually, at Connell Baptist Church, where Pastor Jason Latter is there. With the church everywhere, we are celebrating today the Feast of Pentecost, the annual celebration of the outpouring of God's Spirit on the church and the consequent spread of the gospel to every nation under heaven. And then closer to home, secondly, we have a bit of a little local celebration as our friend and your pastor and my colleague, Pastor Jeff Shaw, we're going to be installing him today as the newest member of our pastoral staff. And it's actually quite fitting that we should be celebrating these two things on the same day. Because one of the significant means that the Lord uses, that the Spirit of the Lord uses to spread the gospel to every nation, is his ministers. So what more wonderful day to install a new battery in the pack than the day when we celebrate the outpouring of the Spirit on his church. Of course, it's not the case that it's just ministers who are responsible for this. We all recognize we're all filled with the Spirit. We all have the responsibility to be like Christ and speak the word of Christ to those around us and to live as members of the body of Christ in such a way that people see Christ in us because they see the work in us of the same spirit who fills him. But it's foolish to deny, isn't it, that there is a significant responsibility placed on those privileged to serve as ministers in leading and carrying forward this task. And so my privilege today is to unfold a little of what Scripture says about both these topics and what better place to turn than 1 Kings chapter 10. You will know this passage very well. This is perhaps, arguably, the narrative high point of the entire history of Israel. Just think what's happened here. Uh, we're in the reign of Solomon. We're told in chapter 4 of 1 Kings that Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and, every, and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. There is peace in the land. The very name Solomon means peace. Shalom, shalomo, the, the word comes from the Hebrew word for peace. David's wars are over. The land is at rest. The temple has been built, a permanent dwelling place for the living God among the people of God. And preeminently, Solomon has been enthroned as the wise king, the one who has the God-given capacity to lead and guide the people of God, the writer of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and the leader of God's people for so many years. And all of this in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis that Abraham's offspring would encompass many nations, many nations of the world would come to know the Lord by blessing Abraham. And here comes this queen, this magnificent woman, the queen of Sheba, this pagan 
who presumably sees something in Solomon's reputation that draws her to the Lord. And I'm not sure we're in a position to say much about the Queen of Sheba's heart, but we can certainly say something about what she says, can't she? Blessed be the Lord your God. Well, that's what you're supposed to say in response to hearing of the gospel preached in advance through Abraham's offspring. To bless Abraham and to bless the Lord God of Abraham. That's the response that's required of all the nations of the world. So we've got here a wise leader of the people of God. And we have here, well, I want to suggest a foretaste of the Pentecostal outflow of the message of the gospel carried to every nation at Pentecost. This is Pentecost in miniature. And I want to explore those two themes just uh, for the next few minutes with you. And first, let's just make the obvious point that Solomon's reign anticipates that which happens much later in Acts chapter 2. Solomon's reign anticipates the spread of the gospel through the poured out spirit of the living God. Just look at me, we'll recap this uh, well-known passage, verse 1. Now she comes to Solomon, I'm going to look at these verses in a bit more detail later, but basically she comes and she's, uh, she's got all these questions and Solomon's like, yeah, yeah, that's not difficult. And she's like blown away, end of verse 5, when she saw all, all this stuff, that there's no more breath in her. I'll come back to that in a second. Then verse 6, let's look at this in a bit more detail. She said to the king, it's true. <laughs> what, what I heard, the report that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, I mean, I didn't believe it until I'd seen it, but now I've seen it. Now my eyes have seen what the Lord has done among you and in you. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report I've heard. Wonderful verse 8. Happy are your men. It's an echo of Psalm 1. The word happy here is the word used, sometimes translated blessed in Psalm 1. Blessed are your men. End of Psalm 2 as well, which is like introduction to the Psalter. Psalm 1 the blessed man is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord, Psalm 2. The blessed man is the one who kisses the son, the anointed king of the people of God. And he's done that among you. Happy are your men. How blessed they are. Verse 9. Probably the best glimpse we get into the heart of this enigmatic, wealthy, powerful woman. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel. He must have loved Israel to make you king, Saul. To uphold justice and righteousness. And she, get, she brings this wonderful tribute. Not for, the, not for the last time does a wise pagan who's on the verge of conversion, if she's not converted already, bring gold and spices to God's anointed king. Hmm? You see a foretaste here of the ministry of the greater Solomon. It's fascinating, actually. I said, verse, end of verse 5 has got a little detail which is worth looking at. It's just a wonderful moment. Literally, it says, when, when she'd seen all this stuff, long list of all the things she'd seen, there was literally no more spirit in her. The word for breath and the word for spirit in Hebrew, the same word, ruach. And it's, it's very suggestive because what it, what it implies is that she thought there was ruach, breath, spirit, in her beforehand. She comes along, and she's quite wealthy, frankly, and she, I've got a bit of the spirit... And she comes along and sees Solomon, thinks, I've got no spirit at all. <laughs> the spirit's all here. I thought I had it all. I thought I had it all. The wealthiest king of one of the wealthiest nations of the world. But man, the spirit is only found among the people of Solomon. And the people of the greater Solomon. The spirit is here. 
No more spirit in her. What a glittering foretaste of Pentecost. The place where the spirit, that is to say, the abiding personal presence of the living God is found is in the people of God. We live under the rule of Jesus Christ, a greater king than David, who's won greater victories than all the victories David won over death and sin and Satan. We live under a greater king than Solomon, who's ascended to his heavenly temple, who's seated on his heavenly throne, who rules the nations, who is the prince of Shalom, the prince of peace. And now he's given us this gift. You know that in the ancient world, it was very common, it was just standard practice for kings and generals and military leaders who returned to their people after a great victory to bring gifts with them. So they'd, cut, they'd enter, you know, Roman emperors would return or Roman generals return to Rome in triumph and all the great cities of the ancient world, you know, leading their captives behind them, Colossians 2, like Jesus, yes, leading death and Satan captive, and, and then distribute gifts to the people, plunder from the conquest to some of the generals and Maybe they'd declare a feast and a holiday for all the people who'd put up with all the pain of war for so long. So kings give gifts to their people, valuable things. But let me tell you, no king in history has ever done this. Ascended to his heavenly throne and given the most significant thing of all, which is what? Himself. I'll send another counsellor. There are two words in Greek. When Jesus is talking to his disciples about, in John's Gospel, in the farewell discourse, talking about what he's going to do after he's gone. There are two words in Greek for another. One means another different one. Another means another one that's basically the same, which is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going to send you another counsellor. Don't worry, I'm going away. But I'm going to be with you, he says. I will be with you. Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the end of the age because he's given his spirit to his people. Having ascended on high is is Peter's logic in Acts 2, isn't it? Recall what he says at the conclusion of his Pentecost sermon. It's this Jesus who you crucified, who's now exalted to the right hand of God, who has poured out what you're seeing and hearing. He's given the gift of the Spirit, fulfilling all these glorious expectations. And it's interesting, when you view it this way around, you realize what a gift we have. This is one of the functions of these typological prophetic narratives. Like, 1 Kings 10 is a big deal. It's like a massive event in the life of the people of God. If you could have been there, it would have been etched on your eyeballs for every day of your life. Just to see the magnificence of this woman bowing the knee, like so many did on the day of Pentecost, and bringing their tribute to the living God. And that is a pitiful foretaste of the promise that we've received. And so now, the goal of history... the The reason we're all still here is that all the nations of the world should get to experience the amped up, rip it, turn it to 11 and rip the knob off version of what the Queen of Sheba experienced on this prototypical Pentecost. That all the nations of the world should see what she glimpsed in Solomon. It's going to happen, and it will only happen because of the outpouring of the Spirit of God to unite us with Jesus. Who the heck are we? Like, pitiful, wretched, poor, blind, and naked, helpless sinners. And and yet we've been clothed in Christ and his righteousness and 
filled with the same spirit that animates and empowers Jesus. So now we have this privilege and responsibility to be like Jesus to the nations. It's why the church is called the body of Christ, because it's our calling to be like Christ. And, and how often we lament our failure, don't we? And we look at ourselves and we realize we have done a fairly poor job of being like Jesus. We have, we have, done a fair, we have been fairly leaky vessels of the outpoured water of the Spirit, haven't we? And yet, because the Spirit is a spirit of forgiveness and grace and new beginnings and new creations, like, failure is not permanently inevitable. You know, those gifts of the Spirit in uh, uh, Ephesians 4 and elsewhere in the New Testament that we're called to, to share and to use to serve others, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Like, we may not be what we should be, but praise God, we're not what we were, and it's all by the Spirit's grace. If there's anything good going on here, it's because of the work of the Spirit. I want to say a word to you about that, especially to people who may not know us so well. It's, it's wonderful, like I said a few minutes ago, to welcome uh, visitors to our congregation. And, and we're conscious, we don't know you very well. We, we don't even know whether you would normally be in church. Maybe you're not sure what you believe. Maybe you know that you're not a Christian. And I hope a couple of things for you. I hope you have a wonderful day today. I hope you really enjoy being with us and uh, and I hope you realize that if you see anything good here, it's because the Spirit of God is very kind, very gracious, and very powerful. If you enjoy this time of worship, if you enjoy our fellowship and our meal later, please take that as a, a witness to God's grace among us. We, we are not, it's not like these are all these wonderful people here, please, no. These are all these blind beggars who are here to tell other blind beggars where we have found food and the Spirit has given it to us because the Spirit has given Christ to us. The Spirit brings Jesus to us. And that, that's the other thing. We, we want you to have a wonderful meal down there. We want you to enjoy your time with us here. But above all, we'd love for you to have Jesus. And we hope that you will feel not too embarrassed to ask me or Pastor Neil or Pastor Shaw or anybody, whoever brought you, just what is it that you guys believe in? Take your time to explore what it is that Christians are all about. Because really, that's what we're celebrating. Today we celebrate what is anticipated in 1 Kings 10, the outpoured power of the Spirit of God. Now, one of the gifts that the Spirit gives is the gift of the pastor-teacher. Think of Ephesians 4. Uh, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Probably one office in view there. And with that in mind, it is highly fitting that with this anticipation of the Pentecostal gift, which is the gift that you, Pastor Shaw, have received, the gift of the Spirit, who has empowered you as a pastor and a teacher, and with this example of wise and good leadership, we should seek, as we approach the moment of installing you formally here, we should take this opportunity to remind ourselves, and perhaps particularly, sir, to press upon you the privileges and responsibilities of your calling if you are to be like Solomon and actually like the one who's greater than Solomon. So if I may, just a few minutes to highlight the second point that flows from this passage, which is this. Solomon exemplifies the wisdom that is required of all God's ministers. Just look again at the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. I said we'd look at this in more detail. Uh, verse 1. It's very striking. 
some of the details here. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Now, isn't that just wonderful? It's not the fame of Solomon concerning his own grandiosity. What's significant about Solomon is that the name or the reputation of the Lord has flowed out from him. May we become nothing. May we decrease so that he increases. That the Lord increases. She came to Jerusalem. Well, no, sorry. She came to test him with hard questions. Literally, the hard questions, it, it's, it means riddles, obscure things, opaque things. This is the curveball question in forum. <laughs> All that, that email that I just had a question I wanted to ask you and you're still scrolling down five minutes later. In verse 2, she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue. She's an impressive person with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And notice the text doesn't tell us what was on her mind. You notice that? It leaves unanswered the question that we might want to ask. Like, what did she ask? And it's a brilliant piece of uh, theological literary art because we are transported into precisely the emotional situation that an onlooker would have been in, just not understanding what these two are talking about. It's so baffling. These hard riddles that Solomon is just unfolding before her ears. And we don't, know, we don't understand what they're talking about. We don't know, because it doesn't tell us. Verse 3, and Solomon answered all her questions. There's nothing hidden from the king. That's fascinating, isn't it? It suggests that something had been revealed to the king that he could not explain to her. Verse 8 picks up the same theme. Happier your men, happier your servants who continually stand before you and hear what I've just heard for five minutes or three hours or whatever it was, your wisdom. Now we know that Solomon's wisdom was a gift of God. Chapter 4 tells us God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore because the people of Israel are going to be like the sand on the seashore. So if you're going to rule them, you're going to have to have a mind that is able to encompass all the things that they are and need and do. And yet at the same time, I don't think we're to fail to recognize that this gift of wisdom is the result of long, hard labor, hours of study and thoughtful reflection. You don't just knock out Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon in half an hour. This is what happens. You get to Ecclesiastes after decades of spirit-saturated, prayerful reflection that brings you to the point of inspiration by the Spirit of God so you're able to write those things. That's what happened with Solomon. He didn't just sort of knock this thing out. We know from um, 2 Timothy chapter 1 that when a preacher has received a gift, as Paul's younger colleague Timothy has, Paul says, fan into flame your gift. It's not like, oh, kick back, Solomon. Chapter 4, you've got a gift of wisdom. Talk, talk about an easy life. Sermons just come and appear, and I never have to read. You know, I've done seminary, and now I've got this certificate that says I never have to read anything ever again. It's not like that. It's it's the labour and the earnest, long hours of reflection and prayerful study. And I want to urge you, Pastor Shaw, to remain committed to this labour with everything in you. Think, for example, about your teaching. We've got you're going to be teaching. For the next couple of weeks, next Sunday and the Sunday after, it's beginning a series on the book of Jonah. Every scribe trained for the kingdom is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure things both new and old. We don't want to have some warmed over, 
grab it out of the freezer, slap it in the microwave, ping, stuff that you dreamt up 10 years ago. We want you to be so gripped by the freshness, the ever-living freshness of the Word of God, that when you bring things to us, you are overflowing with them, because that will then grip us. That's obeying the words of Jesus, bringing out of his treasure things both new and old. It's not possible to do that just by like kind of you know, rock into work at the middle of the afternoon, read a couple of blogs, and then you know, borrow a sermon from sermonaudio.com. That's, just, that's not how the Spirit works. You know this. You know, I've, just, I've seen you just this last week, the long hours with men in the church doing the practical issues in relation to our audio and video. You know this from many years of long experience, and I urge you to keep with that hard work and prayerful study. Same in your pastoral ministry, your counseling ministry. Many here already have already benefited from your thoughtful and cheerful and considered reflections. And it's, it's striking to me that there's so much about pastoral ministry, which is about hearing. When, um, when Solomon asks for wisdom in chapter 3, he says literally, uh, give to your servant a hearing heart. And, and it, it says um, uh, an understanding mind or something in our translations. And that's what it has in mind, because the Hebrew heart roughly corresponds metaphorically to the, the English mind. But it's interesting that it's a hearing heart. Because we have to be those who hear our brothers and sisters in Christ. And those who hear the living God and so can bring the prophetic wisdom from the living God to them. And, you know, as well as Pastor Neil and I do, and any minister does, it's hard work. I, I, was, I have nightmares sometimes. I want to tell you about one of them. I, I don't really have nightmares. But I, I have this recurring... I have this recurring mental vision of a man I never met because he lived mm, 75 years before I was born. Alexander White, Scottish Presbyterian pastor from the late 19th and early 20th century. Now, I want to say he, he was speaking in a situation somewhat different than ours, but I think his words are still worth hearing because he focuses with unrelenting, brutal precision on the ministerial task of sorting out our priorities doing what needs to be done, omitting things that would be a distraction to us and working hard at it. Um, at one point, uh, he, he, um, this was late 19th century. Uh, he was dismayed. He'd been a pastor for over 40 years at this point. Um, and he was dismayed by what he saw as the laziness of many students in the theological seminary and indeed many men in ministry. He said, quote, I would have all lazy students drummed out of the college and all lazy ministers drummed out of the assembly. I would have laziness held to be the one unpardonable sin in all our ministers. You see why this keeps me awake at night, right? Now, it's interesting. Some of the younger ministers apparently complained to the elderly pastor White, with a Y, that they had too much work to do. They didn't have time for it. He had some choice words for them. First, he actually talked to them about prioritizing their tasks. You, let me tell you, you do have too much to do if you scurry around like a headless chicken trying to do everything. But the first thing White says, we have plenty of time for all our work. Did we husband our time and hoard it up aright? Were we only sufficiently jealous of every man and everything that comes to steal our time? 
You see the point? He's saying you do have time for the things you need to do, but they're not going to drift into your inbox because a bunch of other stuff will drift in there too. And then he says, and, and, um, the, and these are the words, no, no, these and the next quote are the words that I can't shake from my head. I'm going to be muttering these under my breath on my deathbed, I'm sure. Did we work as many hours in the day and as hard as all the people who support us at work? As early in the morning and as late at night and as hard all the lifelong day. Oh no! We cannot look seriously in one another's faces and say it is want of time. It is want of intention. It is want of determination. It is want of method. It is want of motive. It is want of conscience. It is want of heart. It is want of anything and everything but time. And then these are the words, well, I'll just... Most chillingly of all, he says, and I quote, the blood of Christ itself will not and cannot atone for an indolent and uncommitted and faithless ministry, which is any ministry not devoted to its proper work. Now, brother, I really have enjoyed getting to know you. And one of the things I've been encouraged by. One of the things that stood out in what the men uh, at the college where you previously worked and in the presbytery where you previously served, one of the things that stood out was their unanimous and enthusiastic testimony of your labors, your hard labors in the Lord. And I commend you for that. And I pray that you would encourage me and that I will be able to encourage you, and all three of us will be able to encourage each other, that we may give ourselves to this astonishing privilege of shepherding these people, the beloved people of God. Let us not grow weary in doing good. The rest of the denomination must have thought Alexander White was onto something, because they made him principal of the theological college a few years later when he was 73 years old. I think he was just warming up in those early years. All right, just some brief comments. I, I want to make some final comments about um, the particular focus of your calling. As you know, when we uh, called Pastor Shaw, we were looking for a pastor to focus on the ministry of administration. And obviously, all three of us are involved in teaching, preaching, pastoral ministry, but there are areas of specialization and overall oversight. And We've asked that you focus on that. Now, it's very interesting, therefore, that when you look back at this passage in 1 Kings 10, you notice it wasn't just what Solomon said that struck the Queen of Sheba. It was how he'd organized everything. Look at verse 4. Look closely. When the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon. Ah, seen. Where? Look. The house that he'd built. The food on his table. The seating of his officials. The, literally, the standing of his slaves. Their clothing. His cupbearers. And his burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Isn't it interesting? It's the practical management of the affairs of the people of God that really strikes this woman, alongside Solomon's wisdom. And it's very interesting. There's a deliberate blurring of the lines between the practical administrative tasks of Solomon's duties in the court and the, the tasks that are connected with the worship of the living God. So you just look, for example... Um, the house that he'd built, well, that's his house. The food at his table. But you look down the list, I mean, obviously right at the end, the, the burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord, well, that's the, the worship that 
this organized and competent man facilitated in the temple, which is next door to the house of Solomon. And in fact, that phrase, the, the standing of his slaves, that, that phrase is used elsewhere to describe Levitical servants in the temple. So what's happening? This is ref a reflection of the broader biblical theme that the, the gifts for service that the people of God bring are themselves a sacrifice, an offering that's pleasing to God. And your job is to coordinate it all. Your job includes the responsibility for 300 and something growing rapidly people, all of whom are called to serve, all have gifts of one kind or another. And they can't just, we can't just have people sort of scurrying around doing stuff. And again, like I mentioned earlier, I've seen you this week getting down and dirty with the gritty practical tasks of, in this case it's AV, so that people in the fellowship hall, hey, everyone in the fellowship hall, can hear and see what's going on in the worship service in the sanctuary today. And I want to encourage you, do not neglect, this is Hebrews 13, 16, to do good and share what you have. This is talking to the whole congregation. For such sacrifices are pleasing. So when you're doing rotors or calling people or scurrying around to keep things well organized, you are coordinating these sweet-smelling aromas, which are the offerings of the people of God to their living God. So much for Solomon. Now, of course, Solomon lets us down, doesn't he? Solomon disappoints us with the temptations of wealth and power, the horses and chariots, even God preserves the sexual infidelity. Uh, commentator Peter Lightheart remarks that Solomon's life does not narrate the simple truism that even a wise person can fail. Rather, it shows that a wise man shows a wise man, sorry, who fails precisely at the height of his wisdom. Precisely at the moment when everyone acknowledges his wisdom. Precisely in the exercise of his wisdom. And so it is actually a warning to us, as well as an encouragement. Let me give you the warning first. This is from Richard Baxter, the great English Reformed pastor. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. He was a pastor to pastors. We know from his reformed pastor, the, the book that he wrote, for other men in pastoral ministry. God preserve us from a, a Solomonic fall, Jeff. But think of the encouragement. We are united by the Spirit who indwells Jesus to the greater Solomon, Jesus. We, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. By his grace, such failure is not inevitable. If we cleave, and this is my final word to you, Pastor Shaw, if we cleave to the king who came not to be served but to serve, if we remain one with the prophet who wept over his people's sin and didn't have contempt for them as he entered Jerusalem, and the great high priest who gave himself, where shall I find a sacrifice that will fix this mess? Oh, yeah. Who laid down his life for his sheep. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, we all have a great deal to learn from King Solomon, and all the more from our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Solomon. And so may we, and in particular we pray today, our friend, our brother, our pastor, 
Jeff Shaw, every day lay down his life for your precious children. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.